Well, shortly after Lindsay and I, uh, my wife and I got married, we went on a honeymoon and we went to Mexico. We went to this little island in Mexico and in our preparations for this trip, uh, we were given the counsel about the do's and don'ts of what you should do, what you shouldn't do. If you've ever traveled internationally, I'm sure you're familiar with some of the do's and don'ts. Uh, you have to prepare so that you know how to live in the place that you're going to. And one of those don'ts is don't drink the water. Drink purified water. Because if you don't, then that contaminated water will make you sick. It could lead to all kinds of detrimental outcomes. Well. We went out for dinner one night, uh, had a nice Mexican uh, restaurant dinner there, and we weren't really thinking about a free entree that came before the meal, and it was tortilla soup. And we didn't think for a second that perhaps there was water in that that we shouldn't have had because it wasn't purified water. And so uh, we learned uh, what it means to partake of something that's unpurified and the consequences that came after that. And I'll spare you the details. But friends, purity is good. Purity is good. Things that are clean are good. Think about how you steward even your own house. It drives you nuts. Well, it drives most people nuts when your house isn't clean. And sometimes at the end of the week and the hubbub of what's going on through the course of your life, the last thing that gets done is the cleaning. And so you can hit a Saturday and you want to clean everything up in order to have a, a peaceful household and a balanced mind. Well, the idea of purity, it simply means free from contamination, cleanliness, to be clean. It, it applies to precious metals like gold, unmixed with impurities. That's the best kind of gold. A pure tone in music is pleasing to the ear. Purified air is the best air to breathe, and often, Ethics and morality attaches itself to what the culture thinks is pure and clean. The ideas of purity or cleanness become moral standards within the context of culture, and that culture then seeks to enforce upon the people within society as well. We've seen this in regard to smoking. We've seen this in regard to environmentalism, clean eating, clean beauty products, and on and on we could go based off of cultural standards of what is clean or pure. A person's understanding of what is pure and impure creates a kind of relational pressure on other people around them to either conform to one standard of purity or to reject it. And if you don't accept the cultural standard of purity, then you're often then rejected by the culture. I know it's Christmas morning. Many of you are thinking about your plans for the rest of the day, Christmas Day. But friends, remember, today is the Lord's Day. It's the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose again from the grave. Uh, at Redeemer Baptist Church, I've been preaching through the gospel according to John. So we're just moving straight through the text. And that's where we're at this morning in John chapter 3. We'll be considering ch chapter 3, verse 22 through 36. So I didn't pick this passage specifically because of Christmas or the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But friends, don't be mistaken. This text is what Christmas is all about. Purity. A hope of entrance into the kingdom of God. A hope of forgiveness for my sin. 
Jesus took on human flesh, as Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 puts it, by making purification for sins. This is what Jesus' incarnation is all about, that he would purify or make clean, imperfect, and unclean, undeserving sinners like every single person in this room. With that in mind, even thinking about the theme of our text this morning, turn over again to John chapter 3. I'll begin in verse 22. As you turn there, here's a little bit of context. Jesus' ministry had a connection all the way through so far to John the Baptist. In Judaism, there's a constant pursuit for what's called ritual purification. We see washing, uh, various types of eating, even clothing that fits with the holiness codes that God had commanded in his word of cleanness, of what is clean or unclean. The laws for purification were a constant reminder to Israel that they were dirty, that they were polluted in God's sight, and that unless they are clean or purified, that they don't have a welcome into the house of God that we thought about from Psalm chapter 5 earlier. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says, Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Ritual purity also included washing with water. In the ceremonial law under Moses, nothing would be clean in God's sight unless they followed the cleanliness law. So utensils and clothing were cleansed. People were cleansed. Priests were cleansed in the bronze labor if they would be acceptably serving in the worship of God's people in the tabernacle, then later in the temple. The Jews were constantly concerned with this. So they were constantly concerned with John the Baptist because he was linking the Jewish washing and purification laws with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 2, verse 6, Jesus repurposed the six stone jars that were used in the rites of Jewish purification at the wedding at Cana. In John chapter 2, verses 13 to 21, Jesus taught that he is the ultimate temple to whom the temple within Judaism pointed, the only place where people can be made clean or purified, made acceptable in God's sight. John chapter 2, verses 23 through the text immediately before we are this morning, Jesus teaches us of the necessity of repenting or a regenerate life, being born again from above in order to be able to be accepted into the kingdom of God. And John the Baptist's baptism was proclaiming the coming of a Christ who will baptize not with water, but with the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here in this text. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He is the pinnacle, the only way by which anyone could be purified or clean before God's sight. And he is ushering in the new covenant to purify his people from idolatry with washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. All of this is the context. So with our passage this morning, look at John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. I'll read the whole thing through verse 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there. And the people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, 
he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from above or from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I had been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he, he gives the, the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is God's holy, inerrant, sufficient, necessary, authoritative word. And I pray that the Lord would write its eternal truth upon each of our hearts. In working through this, here's the big idea of the text. So if you take notes, you can put this down or just think about it. Log it in that file in your brain. But here's the big idea. Believe in the gospel and Jesus will qualify you for eternal life. Believe in the gospel, Jesus will qualify you for eternal life. I have three points. Number one, pursue purification through Jesus Christ alone. Number two, become less. Number three, obey the gospel. Number one, pursue purification through Christ alone. Matthew chapter 11, verse 9 and 11 describes John the Baptist as both a prophet and the greatest person under the Mosaic covenant that has come. And listen to how Luke chapter 16, verse 16 describes John the Baptist. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way or is forcefully urged into it. John the Baptist is the last old covenant prophet and the greatest. His baptism was the culmination of the Old Testament washings for cleanness or purification. But now Jesus and his disciples, they're baptizing. And the disciples of John the Baptist perceive this as a threat. And they're worried about it. So they come and bring this news to John. Look at verses 22 to 26 again. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there, and the people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion rose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and are going to him. And from this I have first three observations. Number one, notice they're not in Galilee. They're not in Galilee. The Apostle John is writing about Jesus' early ministry that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't cover. And this is where John 
uh, before, rather, John would be put in prison and be beheaded under Herod's rule. Second observation, look at verse 22. It says that Jesus and his disciples were baptizing. And John's disciples described Jesus saying in verse 26, he is baptizing. But if you keep your finger in chapter 3, look over to chapter 4, verse 2. John wants to clarify something for us. There he says, Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. All right, so just notice that Jesus doesn't baptize anybody with water. That's not what Jesus is doing or came to do himself. But his disciples do that. So here at the beginning of his ministry, note that the baptizing that is happening by the disciples, it's by the disciples and not Jesus Christ. Third observation before we keep pushing through here, the motivation for where John and the implication of Jesus' disciples of baptizing, look at the motivation there in verse 23. Because water was plentiful there. In Greek, baptizo means dip, plunge, immerse. There is a Greek word for sprinkling, uh, rantizo, but the word here is baptizo. And the need for plentiful water implies that there needs to be enough water for an immersion. So just an implication, observation of the text there. But then second, John the Baptist's disciples are sensing a conflict. This is the main thing going on in the text. There's a conflict going on with Jesus' disciples. And the Apostle John has described three baptisms so far. Right? The Old Covenant baptism culminating in John the Baptist expressing repentance and a need for cleansing in preparation for the coming of the Christ. In Greek, that word Christ, it's just a Greek translation of Messiah or Meshiach in the Hebrew. And it's not a, a surname like my last name is Brahman. No, Christ is an office. It means anointed one, king, Messiah. So we see that happening, the culmination of the purification washings in the Old Testament in John so far. But then also we see spirit baptism, that Jesus Christ alone has the power and authority to perform, that he will come and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit, John chapter 1, verse 33. And now Christian baptism is what then the disciples are doing here under the tutelage of Jesus in verses 22 and 26. John's disciples, though, they sense a conflict, and rightly so, because there's a transition happening here between the Old Covenant and the incoming of the New. Look at verse 25 again. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. The Greek here for discussion, it's not just a friendly conversation being had between a couple of friends. No, it, it was a debate. The King James has this as a question arose, not discussion, a question. The NIV has, it was an argument. The King James, the New King James, and the New American Standard have a dispute. John's disciples are debating with a Jew about washing and purification. Maybe it was about how John's baptism was so messianic, focusing on the immediate preparation for the immediate coming of the Messiah. Maybe it was how John's baptism was the fulfillment of the Jewish laws of washing and purification? We don't know for sure. But somehow this discussion turned their attention and it shifted to the baptism that Jesus and his disciples were pursuing in verse 26. Look there. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, 
He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Remember back in John chapter 1 that Jesus' first two disciples were originally disciples of John the Baptist. Andrew and the apostle John. And they heard John the Baptist say of Jesus in John chapter 1, here, behold, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so then after he said that about Jesus, they followed him. But many of John's disciples stayed with John the Baptist. And now that more and more are going to Jesus, it feels like a threat. It feels like a conflict. It feels like competition. They're convinced that what John taught about Jewish purification is right. And he was. And, and they've debated and likely suffered for it. But now it seems that they feel Jesus is teaching about inward washing, of being born by water and the spirit up earlier in his conversation with Nicodemus, that that's a threat. And this applies to us in a couple of different ways. They were so zealous that John the Baptist is right about the Jewish rites of purification that they became suspicious of the fulfillment. They came, became suspicious of Jesus because they were so convinced about following after John the Baptist. They perceived Jesus to be a threat. Instead of seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of what their master taught, even as John taught himself, they saw Jesus as a threat. Are there ways, friends, that we can be tempted to become so zealous about religious practices and habits that the Jesus of the Bible would become a threat to us? John's baptism was a sign pointing at our need for spiritual cleansing that Jesus Christ alone can give. Christian baptism in the New Testament is supposed to be a sign pointing backward at the spiritual cleansing that Jesus has already accomplished by causing believers to be born again. But on this side of the cross, we so often make the same mistake that John's disciples were making here in this passage, confusing the sign with the thing that's signified. Water baptism means nothing if Jesus hasn't baptized by the Holy Spirit. And so many think that if you say somehow that you need to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and that's somehow separate from even just the water baptism that a church would pursue, that that regeneration, that teaching of Je that Jesus teaches about what regeneration or being born again is, is a threat to Christian baptism. It's not. And Jesus' claim that no one can enter the kingdom unless they are born again too often is perceived as a threat to how so many profession, Christ, professing Christians think about baptism. We need washing. We need a cleansing. We need purification that no human hand can provide. And yet so often we want to think that by our works that we can provide the purification that we need, that we can somehow outweigh the bad things that we have done by good works even to commend ourselves to God. And we need new hearts. We need a new life if we would be equipped and accepted into God's kingdom. And friends, any cultural morality code that teaches that we can be clean, that we can be acceptable and pure through any human effort is threatened by Christ's ability and claim that we must be born again. The filth and the impurity of our sinful and wicked hearts, it's not something that laying back in warm water can wash away. We need purification that reaches into the depths of our hearts. 
that can deal with the secret sins that we don't tell anybody about. That when everybody goes away that we commit in thought, word, and deed. We need a cleansing that can plumb the, the depths of our secrets. The secret guilt even that we carry around in our hearts and our minds for the ways that we haven't lived in the way that we know that we should have. Friends, we need purification that can give us an authoritative peace when others or we ourselves would condemn us of uncleanness that we have too often pursued and that we claim that we hate. Jesus' cleansing is only a threat to us if we think that we can be purified by our own works. Pursue Christ, friends. Pursue the purification that can only be accomplished by his sacrifice. If you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Jesus Christ as the only way by which you can be made clean before God's sight, I beg of you, talk with me after the service. Talk with somebody that you're sitting around afterward about how you can be counted as righteous, as pure, as clean before God's sight by trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. Jesus is the sole ground of our hope and the necessity that we would be pure in God's sight. It doesn't matter if we fit with the morality codes of the world, whether the shame culture or the, the, what's often called the moral therapeutic deism of the culture, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, the works-based religions of Buddhism, cancel culture, Iowa nice, and so on. If we have Christ, we have purification. We have cleanness. It's in Christ alone that we have the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So friends, pursue purification in Christ alone. The second point, become less. Become less. I love this refrain from the hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When we recognize our sin, when we recognize our uncleanness, when we recognize our impurity and we trust in Christ, it becomes a joy to see that I am nothing, that I deserve nothing, that I can accomplish nothing in regard to my salvation before God's sight. And this is a powerful irony. As long as we think that we are something, Jesus will be a threat to us. But if we see that we are nothing and Jesus is everything, he becomes our only refuge. John the Baptist understood what his disciples didn't. Look at verses 26 to 30. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine, the joy of John the Baptist, is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. What John's disciples perceived as a threat, John the Baptist sees as his joy being complete. 
Remember, John is the prelude to the great hinge of history, Jesus Christ. John is still under the Mosaic Covenant. Jesus is already, though, ushering in the New Covenant, but it won't be in full force until it is cut in his blood on the cross. The Gospel accounts are in this strange, unique time in history where the Old and the New Covenants are converging in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John understood what his disciples didn't. John was merely a prelude. He was a spiritual vapor, as it was, as a transition from the old into the new. Look at John's first response in verse 27. He acknowledges God's freedom, or in Latin, ase, the aseity, the freedom of God, or the sovereignty of God. John's ministry is from God. And the God who gives is the God who also can take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. John understands that he serves at the request of his king. Yes, he baptized Jesus. Yes, Jesus is the one to whom he bore witness. Yes, the repentance and preparation for the coming of the Lord that John preached, that message was from God. He is a prophet of God. But now that everybody's going to Jesus, this is given from heaven as well. And now it's time for John's ministry to close, to come to a close. Even as he bears witness and confronts the leader Herod in his sin and will be imprisoned and be beheaded. John the Baptist recognizes in these words he is not in control. God is. And that's good. The fact that God's sovereignty and John's ministry getting smaller isn't because John did something wrong. It's simply that God only gave it for a season. Friends, God is good to give whatever he gives. He doesn't owe any of us any of this. Whether increase, whether decline, God is good. Everything that we have is from him, and he is good in the way that he dispenses his gifts. John follows this statement, acknowledging God's freedom and sovereignty to do whatever he wants. In verses 28 through 29, essentially saying, I'm not God, Jesus is. The Lord John announced is here in Christ, the singular offspring of Abraham, the singular offspring of David, who will rule forever, is here. You can see in his acknowledgement of him not being the Christ, I am not the Christ. When John the Baptist says this to his disciples, he's essentially proclaiming, I'm not God. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Lord. <coughs> Guys, Jesus is not a threat to the ministry of repentance and faith. He's the Lord. He's the Savior that I preached. And this is the attitude that all preachers should embody. It's not about a personality cult at a church. It's not about looking up front and seeing somebody that looks good or does great things. Our great task is only to be faithful to God's word 
And where God gives the increase, he gives the increase. Wherever he takes away, he takes away. We are only friends, as it were, of the husband. We see that analogy that John makes here. John's joy is complete, though he decrease and become less. His joy is to see sinners united as a bride to Jesus Christ as their husband. He's tapping into the prophetic teaching that we have in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, that God's people are his bride. Listen to Isaiah chapter 62, verses 4 through 5. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And all the bridegroom, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. John the Baptist is saying the new covenant is here. God is here. Emmanuel, God with us, is here in this Christ. He's not a threat. He's your salvation. He's your only hope of being clean before God. He's your only hope of entrance into the presence of Almighty God without being utterly destroyed in his wrath for your sins. Jesus is the husband. He is the bridegroom who unites himself to his bride. And we read later in the New Testament that the church is the bride of Christ. Get the image of a wedding into your mind. Look to the front. You can shut your eyes if you need to, but think about at the front of a wedding. Many of us have been at them before. You've got the guys come in first. They all line up in a row. And you've got the best man that's standing right next to the groom. And then as the bride comes in, that bridegroom, or that, that actually the helper of the bridegroom, should dwindle in existence. All of the attention goes away from that guy that's standing right next to the groom. And then the covenant that's being forged between this husband and this wife becomes the focus before God in this company. Well, John's telling basically his disciples, if I exerted myself in this situation where Jesus, you're perceiving him as a threat, if I came over and told Jesus that what he's doing is wrong, I'd be like the bridegroom that's trying to hit on the bride. I'm trying to step in the place of the bridegroom. And I'm trying to take away his, his wife that's come to marry him. This is ridiculous. Look at verse 30 again. He must increase, I must decrease. The best man should disappear in light of the beauty of the covenant between the bride and the wife, or and the husband. John's decrease implies a decrease in a couple of other ways as well. A decrease of the old covenant, particularly the old covenant purification laws. A decrease in his influence, a decrease in his fame, a decrease in his life. John has fulfilled his charge. He has prepared the way of the Lord, and now the Lord is here in the person of Jesus Christ. Now his ministry will contract, and soon he will die. The call for purification through the blood of Jesus Christ alone is a call to become less. It's a call to decrease. The pursuit of purification washings decrease in light of Jesus' glorious power to be able to cleanse 
by a washing that is given through the gift of the Holy Spirit. We decrease by thinking that somehow water baptism is able to purify us. Now baptism only points to an inward washing that Jesus alone gives. We don't trust that somehow by getting baptized that saves us. No. Friends, pursue this glorious call that Jesus even issues that we would become less. Decrease. Become less by forsaking any hope that you somehow could earn God's forgiveness through good works. Decrease by accepting God's word as more wise than you are. You are not more wise than God. Decrease by thinking less of your own ability to show love and mercy as if somehow you were more merciful or more loving than God is. Decrease by seeing that your opinions and mine are nothing compared to God's. Become less by finding self-deceived independence from God a burden and submission to God through Christ a joy. Decrease by hating your sin and trusting that Jesus alone is able to save. Decrease by taking up your cross and following after him. Decrease by confessing your sin. Decrease by joining Christ's bride in a local church. Become less by thinking less about yourself. Become less by thinking less about the self-centered pursuits that you would pursue for your own gain. And consider how God would use you to bring the gospel to others or to build up brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, counting their interests as more important than yours. Become less by keeping short accounts. That will also lead to your joy. Become less by setting your hope that Jesus alone can make you clean and qualify you for the kingdom of God. Become less. And it's counterintuitive to what the world teaches. Become more. Get more stuff. Build a kingdom for yourself here. Now the joy is found in seeing that no other kingdom can fight against the kingdom of Christ. So there's a joy in becoming nothing. Because Christ is everything. Pursue purification through Christ alone. Become less and then last, obey the gospel. Obey the gospel. The idea of obedience in our society is like a cuss word. It's repulsive to so many people in our society. The idea of submitting to an authority. That is unless you think that you are an authority. Even the cultural debate about pronouns is a call to obey a subjective opinion that someone else has about reality. But so often they could care less about what your opinion of the truth would be. This is the insanity of the age in which we live. Obey is often one of the most offensive four-letter cuss words that our society knows. I remember a number of years ago, I had a conversation with a local coffee shop owner about this. He went to a Christian wedding and the vows, uh, the wife took the vow uh, that she would submit to or obey her husband. And he said that it was offensive and it was demeaning thinking that anybody would have to submit to somebody else like that. And I asked him, well, is it offensive and demeaning that you would ask your employees of the store that you run to submit to your authority as you manage 
the workplace in this coffee shop? He just he smiled at me and caught the contradiction. Oh, actually submission and obedience can be helpful and good. Friends, not obedience, all obedience and submission to authority is bad. Counter to what you may feel or counter to what the culture tells us about this issue. The problem in a fallen world, though, is that so often we have seen authority abused. So we assume all authority, therefore, is horrible and tyrannical, and therefore to submit to anything is going to lead to misery. But friends, the call to submit to good authority for the sake of our joy is a glorious thing. It leads to satisfaction. Look at verses 31 to 36. He who comes from above is above all, speaking of Christ. He who is of earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. So here we see authority. God the Father has given all authority into the hands of his Son. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Again, like we thought about last week, heaven and hell hang in the balance. Whether or not I or you end up in the eternal joy of the eternal kingdom of God, or whether we face God's just eternal wrath in hell forever is in the balance. Some think that he who is of the earth here in this passage is referring to John the Baptist and a contrast of he who is in heaven, so Jesus. So contrasting John's ministry with Jesus' ministry here in the passage I wonder if you see that in the text. That might be the case, but I'm not convinced that the one on earth speaking earthly things is simply limited to John the Baptist alone. It seems that the point is here that Jesus is from heaven. Right? John is telling his disciples Jesus is from heaven. He is from God. He's speaking heavenly things. So he's utterly unique and different from everything we see, not merely my ministry. This is a warning to anyone who will not receive Jesus' testimony. Friends, purification. Unless we are pure and spotless in the sight of God, unless we are clean in the sight of God, we will go to hell. We will face God's just and good eternal wrath in hell. Purification is only through Jesus Christ. It's exclusive. It's through his death and resurrection alone, being born again by the Holy Spirit of God alone. And Jesus told Nicodemus earlier the mystery of how the Holy Spirit causes one to be born again in chapter 3, verse 8. Look there in verse 8. If you have your Bible, jump up and, and just look at verse 8 again in, in chapter 3. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So friends, unless we have the Holy Spirit, nobody can be saved. So how can we get the Spirit? How can anyone be born again? Look at verses 32 and 33. Receiving Christ's testimony. 
verse 33, setting our seal to the fact that God is true in the testimony of Jesus. Verse 36, believe or trust or have faith in the Son of God. Verse 36, obey. Obey Christ. So again, how can we get the Spirit? How can anyone be born again if it's nothing that we can do? How can we be cleansed? How, how can we be purified to be made acceptable in God's sight? How can we have assurance of our salvation? By receiving Jesus' teaching as God's truth. It's the doctrine test. If you don't know anything about Jesus or what he taught, then you can't have an assurance that you've been born again. Many claim to be Christians and they don't even know anything about who Jesus is or what he taught. A few months ago, Joshua and I were at the Chipotle down the street from here and we ended up in a conversation with a woman who was telling us that she was born again. But then when we started to talk about what the Bible says about who Jesus is and what Jesus taught, she rejected all of it. Friends, that's not what it means to be born again because you grew up in a Christian household or you went to church with your parents growing up or somehow you were baptized or you have your name on the member role of a church someplace. No. Rejecting everything that Jesus teaches and doing those types of things, it does nothing except deceives me in a mad race to hell. And one of the things that Jesus taught was that he would send his apostles to teach God's word. So friends, do we receive Jesus? Do we, do we receive his apostles and what they taught? The first test of whether or not we have the spirit is this, whether or not we receive Christ's testimony is the very word of God, whether or not we receive the testimony of Christ's apostles as the very word of God. But second, we have assurance by obeying Christ's command that we see here in this text to receive, believe, trust, and have faith in his teaching, his life, and his resurrection, and his death and resurrection for our sins. In 1 John, this is what's often referred to by Christians as the obedience test. Later, Jesus will say that if we love him, we will keep his commandments. And setting our seal to the truth of God is a call to commit. Will we respond to Christ's command that we would obey? Will we commit our life to him? What are the ways that you are tempted to hold out on committing everything that you have to Christ? You trying to keep your options open? What are the things that would stand in the way of you giving your life and all that you have, your labors, your thoughts, your talents, to Christ in service of his church? the spread of the gospel to all nations, even publicly. Yes, our faith is a very personal thing, but it's never private. It's not up to us. Jesus' disciples own him before the testimony of their community, whether it's in a church or the neighborhood in which they live. This means that we say no to the world and yes to Christ. It means that we make a commitment to follow Christ. Later on, we see in 1 John that setting our seal on Christ looks like loving a local church and committing to the body of Christ in the context of a local church. People who are born again love Christ's sheep. Yes, we're sinners. Yes, we still struggle with sin. And sometimes 
We get in fights and difficulties that are miserable. And yet at the same time, those who are truly born of the Spirit of God, those who are born again, who have entrance into the kingdom of God, who have been made pure through the blood of Jesus Christ, they love Christ's people in the church. All of this is Christ's call to obey the gospel, to turn from embracing sin, turn from embracing anything in the world for my purification, and to place all of my hope in Christ alone. Putting all my eggs in this basket, betting everything that we have on Christ. Look at verse 33 again. Whoever receives this testimony sets his seal that God is true. This is the evidence that God has given his spirit without measure to a person. This is the evidence that someone is born again. That they obey the call to the gospel to set their seal to Christ. A seal, thinking of a signet ring, pressing that signature, as it were, into wax, pledging myself to Christ. We see in 1 Peter chapter 3 that even baptism is a pledge for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Setting our seal on Christ, staking a flag in the ground, I will stand with Christ. I have decided to follow Jesus. Both Paul and Peter saw their, their apostleship existed to bring what's often referred to as the obedience of the gospel, obedience to the faith in Christ. And even look at the end there in verses 35 and 36 again. Whoever believes in verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Have you obeyed the call? to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ? Do you believe in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do you believe in the claims of Jesus Christ, that the flesh is of no help at all? Do you believe that he alone is the only entrance into acceptance in the eternal kingdom of God? Believe it. His claims are true, and they are trustworthy. And they are powerful enough to bring us through the temptations and trials and sins that we face in this life into the eternal hope of heaven. But this morning as well, we have to ask the question, are you rejecting Christ? What are the things that stand in the way of you putting your trust in Jesus Christ? Is it the validity of, of the authority of the Bible? Is it an, a question of apologetics and creation or something like that? Have you read through the Bible before with an open mind and heart, considering that this is true? Friend, talk with me and somebody else after the service, because again, the wrath of God, if you not, are not in Christ, remains upon you. Without the purification that we have through the blood of Jesus Christ, you are destined for eternal wrath in hell. Repent of your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ. Obey the call of the Son to repent and believe and see eternal life through his blood alone. As I close, and even as we go on with the rest of this Christmas day, friends, consider purification. Cleanness is good. Purification is good. 
Only Jesus Christ can give us the cleanness and purification that we need if we would have any hope beyond today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise for Jesus Christ. We give you praise that we have the opportunity to sing of your grace and that you give your spirit into the hearts of undeserving sinners like us. We pray that the conversations that we have throughout the course of today would bring you glory and honor. We pray for anybody in this room that is not trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would hear the good call, the happy call that it is to repent of our sins and obey the, the call of Christ to repent and believe. Oh, Father, we pray that you would be glorified as well to help each of us to become less and less enamored with the promises of this world. And we pray that you would help us to sink our roots deep in the promises that we have in Christ alone. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.